Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Remembering Death, Confessing Life, Jesus Raises Lazarus. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, April the 6th, 2014, the fifth Sunday in Lent. A month ago, we began Lent with the imposition of ashes and the recitation of Genesis 3.19. Remember that you are but dust, and to dust you shall return. In Latin, memento mori, remember that you will die. That's not just a pious platitude. It's wise advice. For biological death threatens everything about us. Unless we forget, I've found several atheist friends who do a good job of remembering death. Several months ago, the literary critic James Wood of Harvard described attending the funeral of a man who died ridiculously long, young. The service honored the memory of the man, but it also reminded Wood of the futility of life in the shadow of death. Wood writes, It was just a life, one of millions, as arbitrary as everyone else's, a name Tennessee that will soon become a nameless one, a life that we know with horror will be thoroughly forgotten within a few generations. We're appalled by the meaninglessness and ephemerality of existence. In his book, Nothing to be Frightened of, from 2008, the British novelist Julian Barnes explored his fear of death in light of his lack of faith. Was it possible to give his life a meaningful narrative? The title of the book is a clever play on words. Is death nothing to fear? Or perhaps maybe death is a nothingness we rightly fear. The prospect of absolute extinction, both personal and cosmic, and the terror that that thought provokes in him, causes Barnes to admit that while, quote, he doesn't believe in God, he misses him. Barnes's newest book, Levels of Life, published just last year, explores his grief when his wife of 30 years died, 37 days from diagnosis to death. There seem to be two lessons in this, his most recent novel. First, when you put two people together and one is taken away, what is taken away is greater than the sum of what was there. This might not be mathematically possible, but it's emotionally possible. And second, the grief we bear is proportionate to the love we share. A friend wrote to Barnes after his wife's death, quote, the thing is, nature is so exact. It hurts exactly as much as it is worth. So in a way, one relishes the pain. If it didn't matter, it wouldn't matter. And then thirdly, there's the posthumous book by Christopher Hitchens called Mortality published in 2012. Hitchens remained an atheist to the end, 
But, but like Wood and Barnes, he's much more circumspect than you might have anticipated. Beyond his trademark bravado, Hitchens is brutally honest about what it feels like to know you're dying. The feelings of impotence, oppression, resignation, unbearable physical pain, humiliation, and vulnerability. He calls the bluff of the cliché that whatever doesn't kill me makes me stronger. That's a dangerous and pretentious illusion, he says. He meditates on the poetry of T.S. Eliot. I have seen the moment of my greatness flicker, and I have seen the eternal footman hold my coat and snicker, and I am afraid. As for Philip Larkin's famous death poem, Obeyed, with its terrifying description of fear in the face of death, Hitchens describes it as an implied reproof to Hume and Lucretius for their stoicism. Fair enough, in one way, he writes. Atheists ought not to be offering consolation either. Death is the greatest of all the principalities and powers that we face. Paul called it our ultimate enemy. Our default mode, though, is to ignore death. The lay theologian and street lawyer William Stringfellow observed how we glorify death in war. We deny death at our funerals. Death, said Stringfellow, assumes many social forms that serve our social purposes, like Hiroshima or ignoring the poor. At Lent, we give death its due. But in our Christian vocabulary, death is a penultimate word and not the final say. John's story about Lazarus in John chapter 11 is only one of many instances of the confession deeply embedded throughout the New Testament that Jesus conquered death. He tasted death for everyone, and through death he rendered powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. The earliest witnesses proclaimed in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. Like a lot of important things that are true, this is easier to confess than to explain, describe, or understand. Nor is there any proof for this affirmation of faith. Christian resurrection of the physical body is not Plato's immortality of an immaterial soul. No, not everyone believed in the resurrection. Some of those who followed Jesus said it seemed like nonsense. There have always been doubters. And yes, there are alternate explanations. One proposal widely circulated after Jesus' death was that the disciples stole the body and created the fiction of Christ's resurrection. Still others argue that the life and teachings of Jesus are immortal in the sense of being sublime or inspirational, much like we describe the music of Mozart. Some suggest that Jesus lives on in us as a powerful memory and presence, like the spirit of Gandhi or a favorite uncle. And maybe the first believers were badly deluded and wrong, or blatant liars and immoral, 
as Pascal put it, deceived or deceivers. So, take your pick. Julian Barnes doesn't let himself off the hook too easily. He's bothered by what he calls the haunting hypothetical that the resurrection story could be true. He questions his atheist faith. Is personal identity no more than a social construction, such that when your heart and brain cease to function, yourself ceases to exist? In the epistle for this week, Paul articulates the good news that lingers just beyond Lent. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. This hope for the future transforms our present. We're freed to live gladly, for we believe that nothing can separate us from the love of God, not even death. For books this week, I review a tiny volume of poetry. The author is Denise Levertoff. The title, The Stream and the Sapphire. Selected Poems on Religious Themes. New York, New Directions Books, 1997. 88 pages. Denise Levertoff, who lived from 1923 to 1997, was born in England to a Welsh mother and a Russian Hasidic father. Her father, who had immigrated to the United Kingdom from Leipzig, converted to Christianity and became an Anglican priest. She herself moved to the United States in 1948 after marrying Mitchell Goodman, and in 1955 became an American citizen. I knew before I was 10, she once said, that I was an artist person and that I had a destiny. By the time she died in 1997, Levertov had published nearly 50 volumes of poetry, prose, and translations. Levertov taught at Brandeis, MIT, Tufts, Stanford, and the University of Washington. It was at Stanford where she taught for 11 years from 1982 to 1993 in the Stegner Fellowship Program, and where her papers are now housed that Levertov converted to Christianity at the age of 60. After moving to Seattle in 1989, she joined the Catholic Church. This little volume of poetry from 1997 collects 38 poems that were previously published in seven different volumes, beginning back in 1978. They aren't exactly chronological, says Levertov in a brief foreword, but they do trace her own slow movement from agnosticism to Christian faith. In addition to her struggles with faith and doubt, many of the poems reflect on historical people like Thomas Merton, Rilke, the Apostle Peter, Cademan, Brother Lawrence, Dom Helder Camera, the servant girl of Emmaus, and Julian of Norwich. 
Others explore biblical texts and theological themes, like the parable of the mustard seed, the curse of the fig tree, the Annunciation, the Resurrection, and the Ascension. For more on Denise Levertov, see the two critical biographies. First, by Dana Green, called Denise Levertov, A Poet's Life, published in 2012. And then another book by Donna Hollenberg, A Poet's Revolution, The Life of Denise Levertov, newly published by Berkeley in 2013. Once again, Denise Levertov, The Stream and the Sapphire. For movies this week, I review a title called Her that was released in late 2013. This movie could have been a huge flop, but the risks taken by writer-director Spike Jones paid big rewards. By the end of 2013, Her had won a long list of major awards, including Film of the Year by the LA Times. Theo Twombly, played by Joaquin Phoenix, epitomizes the logical extreme of a life that's totally digitalized. He works at an internet company that writes fake letters for customers. He plays videos at home. He also falls in love with the disembodied digital avatar of an operating system named Samantha, voiced by Scarlett Johansson. This is a film about life, love, and loneliness in the digital age. It explores what it means to be an embodied person with all its joys and sorrows. The film's cityscapes of Los Angeles accentuate the feeling that something profoundly human has been lost in the age of the internet. The movie her. <clears throat> and for poetry this week, we've posted a poem by Edwina Gately. It's a good poem for the season of Lent. It's called, Called to Become. You were called to become a perfect creation. No one is called to become who you were called to be. It does not matter how short or tall or thick-set or slow you may be. It does not matter whether you sparkle with life or as silent as a still pool. Whether you sing your song aloud or weep alone in darkness. It does not matter whether you feel loved and admired or unloved and alone. For you were called to become a perfect creation. No one's shadow should cloud your becoming. No one's light should dispel your spark. For the Lord delights in you, jealously looks upon you, and encourages with gentle joy every movement of the Spirit within you. Unique and loved you stand, beautiful or stunted in your growth, but never without hope and life. For you are called to become a perfect creation. This becoming may be gentle or harsh, subtle or violent, 
but it never ceases, never pauses or hesitates, only is creative force calling you, calling you to become a perfect creation. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, April the 6th, 2014, the fifth Sunday in Lent. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.